Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. A really timely conversation, always with Ray Dalio, but with what's going on, and we'll finish strong with China here uh, in a moment. This is really, really timely for Global Wall Street. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television and on Bloomberg Radio. John Farrell mentions Evergrande there. Is Bridgewater up to their eyeballs in Evergrande paper? <laughs> no, we don't have any. You don't have any Evergrande? No. i got to make some news here. Help me out, Ray. <laughs> Ray has the bravest bio I've ever seen. Let me go here, and I have a nodding familiarity with this. In his high school years, Dalio was a mediocre student. What happened? How did you go from a mediocre student to the success you've seen over so many years? Um, I, at the, at, then I liked markets. I was a kid. I, I mean, school, when they cram stuff down your throat, and yeah. it just didn't interested me. Markets interested me. The markets interested you and the mathematics markets of the and markets and, the di- and girls. Okay, of course, we knew that, but Long Island. But the dynamics of it, the dynamics of the markets, when did that click in for you? Did it wait 12, for... When I was 12. Or, when you were 12. Well, I, I caddied, and uh, this was yeah. the 60s. And it was, a, you know, that was the hottest time in the markets. Like, yeah. every time you'd get a haircut or shoe shine, somebody would talk to you about the markets. Let's, so I caddied, and yeah. I took my caddying money, and I put it in the markets. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. The first stock I bought was the, my whole criteria was it was the only company that I ever heard of that was selling for lot, less than $5 a what share. Was that? Northeast Airlines. Okay, okay. they did well. <laughs> and, 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 you know, like my investment criteria was I could buy more shares, so if it went up, I'd make more money. That was my criteria. How did it work out? Well, what happened is it's come to and he was about to go bankrupt and yeah. somebody acquired it and it tripled and I thought this game okay. is easy. So that was the start. Right? And yeah. yeah, but I, of course the game isn't easy. The game has not been easy for Bridgewater. Let's get this out of the way. Our Catherine Burton has done wonderful reporting on the struggles of the entire industry. The difference is in 07, 08, you had challenging years and you bounced back with a vengeance. Can you bounce back now with markets at the zero bound? Um, 708 we, was a great year because we caught the, we anticipated the financial crisis mm-hmm. and we did great. And then we had seven and so on. Recently, uh, we got, we missed the COVID coming and then we got hit by the COVID coming. Um, and so then we bounced back from, from that. But uh, I think we, um, we didn't take as much risk as we could because we added we added value, but not as much as we should have added. I want, so. to, I want you to speak to Bridgewater clients now and those with billions lined up considering giving you money. What are the new procedures at Bridgewater to be more supple in the market, given where credit markets are again at the zero bound? Well, I don't think there's new procedures. It is the amount of risk that one wants to take at certain mm-hmm. times. So if you take our all-weather fund, for example, I think it's up... 10 plus something this year, it could have been um, more aggressive. The question is, in this risky environment, how much do you want to be aggressive? You know, so, um, you know, we're always looking at things that we can do better. That pandemic uh, is something that we've examined and we learn a little bit more. But by and large, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's the same, just more of it. 
Stephen Roach of Yale University acclaimed it. Morgan Stanley says it's the single biggest miss he's ever missed was how we came out of the pandemic. How do you feel the nation and our fiscal status will come out of the huge debt buildup we have? How do you believe America will de-debt? Well, this has all happened over and over again. Um, uh, That's what caught my attention. When you hit a zero interest rate and you have too much debt and everybody needs money, the way it works is the government sends out the checks, but the government can't print money. So it has to borrow money from the Federal Reserve and borrow money from others. And they don't have enough money so that they print the money. And so the value of cash and the value of bonds has negative real returns, Mm -hmm. significantly negative real returns. And so money goes somewhere else. It goes into traditionally equities. It goes into gold. It goes into property. It goes, yeah. The the Uh, house over there, Ray, just went up $300,000 when you sat down in the chair. Continue. uh, But the same thing happened in... um, 1971, August 1971, same thing happened in March 1933. And that was when they produced a lot more money and that monetization, which moves its way through the system. Mechanistically, the way it works, a bond, the Federal Reserve comes in and buys a bond. Mm -hmm. It gives it to an investor. That investor then in turn puts it into other investments. And then it gives it to the public through the government. So this is Um, That's the way the mechanics is. Redelio with us at the Greenwich Economic Forum on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television uh, this morning. Let's go to China now. It's so much in the news. I wanted to wait, but I think we've just got to get to China right now. This is a new Beijing. Is it a return to an old Beijing that you and I knew when you were buying Northeast Air? Or do you envision a Beijing that's moving to a new territory? Well, you have... uh daughter and son-in-law in Shanghai, and you, and, and so we get we're some... We're living it in real time. We're living in real time. And the more you have contact, I think, the more you understand it. I don't think it's well understood. For a long time, the, the question is, how can communism and capitalism coexist? That's the riddle you have to answer, and you had to answer mm-hmm. it a while ago. And what do these people want at the top? And what they, um, the answer to that riddle was told also by Deng Xiaoping when he was asked. He said, it's glorious to be rich. And then they asked about capitalism and he says, it doesn't matter if it's a black cat or a white cat, just as long as it catches mice. And so the idea is producing wealth. And so but capitalism, changed. but capitalism, yes, but you, the redistribution. Okay, so we have four things that are really going on in China. If if you understand their intent. Um, uh, Common prosperity is the Mm -hmm. word now, okay? And it has been the objective to raise money and then to to broaden the base of that. Okay, that's common prosperity. So if you look at their tax rates, they're lower than the United States. If you look at the measures of almost capitalism, they have as much capitalism or more capitalism, much Mm -hmm. more so than Europe, for example. And and now they're in a prospect to broaden that. So... I think there's a tendency, and an understandable tendency, to think because they are Maoist oh. and capital and and communist that they're going to uh, go back to that kind of a thing. The, and they're not. Um, Deng Xiaoping, uh, excuse me, um, Xi Jinping, just, um, for example, introduced the newest stock market in Beijing. He made a point of being the one who introduced the market in Beijing to the small and medium-sized enterprises. They know that it catches mice. 
And so the issue is that the capitalist is not in control. The right. issue is that there's a system for the whole system, and then what they want to do is make sure that um, it's not a capitalist-driven system. So, and then there's data control, and then and then you have to understand there's micromanagement. It's like the kids. There's a, there's a top-down versus bottom-up. Whether you like it or not, it's what it How is. How can our listeners and our viewers prosper from their micromanagement of the real estate debt collapse we're beginning to see in China? What is the opportunity if we see their dominant investor position domestically go down in price? How do you play that? Well, it, the mechanics are the same as um, the United States went through and everybody else went through. So it would be very similar to um, okay. our 2008 mechanics. Or we collapses right? or whatever. So what yeah. we do, it's happened over and over again, is um, the central bank makes a decision of moral hazard. You know, they never used to have moral hazard. Do you believe they're there right now after this week that we've seen in the markets? Um, oh, they knew that this was happening. <laughs> and, and there's a preparation for this. And they know that there's more. And, the, and that's a good thing, mm -hmm. not a bad thing. Because in the past, it used to be that they would guarantee it. The right. banks, you, five major banks would loan state-owned enterprises and local right. governments with implied government guarantees, and it was bad. So the process is the same. Expect the exact same type of process as we would go through, which is to say that um, okay. there will be more, there will be stung. Investors will be stung. That's how it works. And that the system will be protected well, because wanna, it's denominated in their own currency. Beautiful. I want to get this on the record, though, Ray Dalio, because every Wall Street firm is saying this morning, this is not a Lehman moment. What we witnessed yesterday in the, the lesson in price, explain why this is not a Lehman moment to Ray Dalio. Well, because a Lehman moment produced pervasive structural damage um, through the system that the, that wasn't rectified until mm -hmm. the Treasury came across in terms of uh, its borrowing and then the Fed came across with quantitative easing. But um, this is not uh, that kind of a shake-up type of thing. This is, it's, 300 billion is what they owe and this is all manageable. The basic economics is, for all countries, in all time, is that if your debt is in your own currency, uh, you can deal with it. You can work it out. You, you could work it out. We've right. seen it happen over mm. and over again. And it's a good thing that uh, uh, lenders get stung or that the borrowers get stung. Okay. That's how the system works. Okay, I want to go to my number one question to Ray Dalio. I'm fascinated by this. You and I have sat at the M bar, at the Mandarin in Hong Kong, and looked at that spectacular experiment. I had the honor of Lord Patton with us the day of the Hong Kong collapse, a change essentially in polity there. How should our Western banks, the people you know, James Diamond, Staley of Barclays, Moynihan of a reinvigorated Bank of America, how should the Western banks adapt and adjust in Hong Kong to new China realities? Well, I think it, very simply you have to decide whether the rules and the place is a place that you're comfortable with. They will set the rules and um, you go in there and you decide if you're going to be part of that as a as a good citizen or you're not. And then, but you don't jump in and out. You're, in other words, China's a, a strategic play. You're not gonna jump in and out. It, so, and, and the amount that you're in should be that which you're comfortable with. It's the same as an investor. It's not smart to sell on the break or buy. It, it, it's, it's, it's a strategic play. Most investors are very overweight in the United States or other places. Diversification, mm. there is a competition, a big competition, a war of sorts 
going on between in technology and so on. That diversification, put the amount that and the exposure that you want to have there because you have to have places on uh, some money on two chips because there are risks in the United States too. When we look at technology, and it's something you address courageously in principles, the book did so well. When's the movie come out? Fourth of July, what? 2024? No, no. Hanks is playing Dalio. Okay, so principles was a huge success. If President Xi said read principles, what would chapter would you want him to read? What does he need to know about Dalio principles? Well, um, I think like everybody, um, the the key is um, know what you don't know, that what you don't know and how to deal with What does he not know about the United States of America, the resiliency of this nation from the Pacific Rim, from Australia and MacArthur all the way up to Tokyo? Well, there's a different there's a totally different approach. It, um, w- whether you like it or not, um, ch- uh, we are a bottom up individualist. Build about individualism right. and build. I think you're the example. And, and, and the individuals and bring immigrants to the United States and 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 that the power of the individual. In China, it is um, the top down and it is an extended family. One of the leaders said mm-hmm. to me, for example, it's like you know a strict parent. And that and so when we deal with things like um, video games, do you want your kids to watch video games in the United States? We would say that's a parental decision. Generally speaking, it wouldn't be the state to make that. They would say it's terrible what's going on and the state is going to mandate it so that there are two those two approaches. And I would say Mm -hmm. that the understanding the relative merits and understanding really how we can get along. Because there's a risk of war. You know, there's a risk of, of conflict here. And so understand how we can get along. I, th- I wish that, uh, yes, Chinese understood Americans better and Americans understood Chinese I, I want to bring better. it back to, to not so much to Bridgewater, but the alternative investment business, again, at the zero bound. You've written about this. You've been very eloquent. Bridgewater, folks, has a great series out on YouTube with Bob Prince really walking through the realities of being at the lower bound. Is the game over? Is, are, is the volatility so taken out, almost like a somnolent Japanese bond market, that we can't provide value anymore above long-only institutional money? Yeah, the, the, the value of interest rates, um, the impact of interest rates has been largely taken out in terms of the magnitude. You're not going to have that kind mm-hmm. of volatility. And if things go down, you're not going to have the same kind of protections from the bonds as, as you do. It's changed because then you get quantitative easing. It gets transmitted so that when you need an easing, you get the printing of money and then you have the reflation type of dynamic. So that's the way, that's the way the volatility is transmitted. We've had plenty of volatility in the markets, but not in the bond market, right? Look at how, how the markets have behaved since um, in last April, uh, they uh, pr- printed the money and mm-hmm. sent out the checks. It, that's the way the dynamic works. Well, what will the consultancy business be? I mean, we've all been wrong that the actuarial assumption is single digit, six or seven percent, and everybody and people that caught the ride have been looking at double digit actuarial returns. Are you and Bridgewater steeled for a single digit future, or can you be more optimistic? No, I think that if, if I think we're going to get another round, every Another round of QE. QE. Well, really, QE Dalio now? What? Sorry? It's going to be called QE Dalio. You're predicting another round of QE. Not immediately. I think that what happens is you get a taper. I think like every 
tightening of interest mm-hmm. rates has been less than the one before it since 2000, right. t- since 1980. Every peak and every trough in interest rates has been lower than the one before it. And then when we hit zero, then we did QE, and every QE has been larger than the one right. before, before it. Because we've accumulated so much debt and that we're now printing. I think that you, you'll have probably one pull back, right. and I'll, I'll call that a mock charge, and then you set the markets down, because the duration of the bond market and the duration of assets is longer. That means interest rate sensitivity right. is greater. You have that particular correction, and then you'll have another round of that. And so I think it's that's the nature of the beast that we're in with. The QE, understand, yeah. and that means negative real returns. The things that must happen is that cash is going to have a lower interest rate than bonds. Is America going to go to negative well, interest well, rates? Um, let me answer. Let me get my thought through, and then get I'll come to that. Get your thought through. Continue. Okay. So, what you'll get is a, ne- um, a significantly negative real cash rate, a negative and probably more significant real mm-hmm. bond rate, and that you're going to continue to have to have interest rates significantly below nominal GDP growth. In other words, inflation plus right. real growth. The average thing is going to increase. Let's take nominal. Nominal GDP, that's production of inflation and growth. You put those two things combined, you would rather own a piece of that, which is a piece okay. of the economy, than you would want to own interest rates. That's the okay. environment Ray, we're in, I believe. We're going to wrap it up here in a bit. Um, people are listening to this worldwide. My colleague, Matthew Miller, is in Berlin listening, and he's in my ear with Bloomberg Technology saying, can you just ask him about Bitcoin? Paulson of the hedge fund game, not Henry Paulson, the other Paulson, the great benefactor of Central Park. John Paulson is saying Bitcoin is a fraud, and I speak with my own words there. But what do you think about Bitcoin? Is it a durable thing for banks or for institutions? Um, I always get asked on Bitcoin. I'm not an expert on Bitcoin, but I'll tell Neither you what I. I think. I'll tell you what I think anyway. Anyway, it's, take it. It's not worth much. But... Um, uh, Bitcoin um, has an imputed value, not an uh, it, it, not a intrinsic value, and uh, and so it depends what it's perceived as. It's a tremendous accomplishment to have done that programming, not have it hacked, and to have its uh, advancement. Um, at the same time, and, and so it will have the perceived value that mm-hmm. it is given uh, by the marketplace. Uh, now, at the t- right now, if you take the value of Bitcoin, you take the price. What should the price mm-hmm. be? And you, uh, since the quantity doesn't change, you know what? It's a function of demand. Right now, Bitcoin is worth a little less than a trillion dollars. Gold, all gold in existence, is worth, if you take central banks and jewelry out of it, about five trillion. So it's about 20 percent right. of that market that represents, you know, the hedge market and so on. I think that there, I think if you, if it's successful, really successful, um, it, it's not going to be a lot more than that. And if it's, um, and also, if it's successful, there's a risk the government will outlaw it. I got, so I got, so that's what I think I about that. I got 20 Bitcoin. seconds. I believe there's a new book coming out. Give us 20 seconds on your new book coming out. 
Well, it's a study I did uh, to understand what's going on now. I did the last 500 years to understand the rises and declines of reserve currencies and empires. And it's called the changing world order. And it, um, it describes the changing world order we're in, but well, putting it from an historical perspective. Well, we'll go for another hour here. I'm kidding. Ray Dalio with us. Thank you so much with Bridgewater today. The huge impact of principles a few years ago and the changing world order. Look for that here. Uh, in the coming weeks, uh, in months. Uh, just so much to talk about here uh, over the next number of hours with the Greenwich World Economic Forum. We start strong in this hour with Mr. Dalio with us later with Noel Rabini. Crisis economics of 11 years ago, but far more than Noel Rabini, who got way out front of that crisis of 05, seeing things come along in 07, 08, 09. And I want to give you a little window right now before we get to the present moment of what Noel and I have lived. There was you and I in Davos at a hotel. It was a late night, and we sat there, and we penciled out the reversion of the mean of the housing market. And you said it's got to end, and it did a year later, maybe 18 months later. Bring us forward now that we are so debt encumbered. Do we have the degrees of freedom that we had when you and I sat at that quiet bar in uh, Davos? Well, my concern is that uh, compared to a decade ago, debt levels, both private and public, are much higher than before. Uh, 20 years ago, debt to GDP ratio globally was about 200% of GDP. Right now, it's 360 and rising. In advanced economies, it's 420% of GDP and rising. In China, it's 330% of GDP and rising. So my concern is that we are in a debt trap. It's not just fiscal dominance, mm -hmm. but when central banks are going to want to essentially phase out unconventional monetary policy, given the debt ratios, there is a risk of a crash in the bond market, in the credit market, in the stock market, in the economy, and therefore they'll be in a debt trap and unable to normalize yeah. policy rates. That's why you see inflation ahead. Dr. Rubini, I am so honored that you're here. I am pleased to announce, folks, that Barry Eichengreen's new book on debt is my book of the year, and this is the guy to talk to about it. Eichen Green spans from golden fetters over to this new debt crisis now. How do you interpret the outcome of this buildup in debt, which is life at the zero bound? Well, we're in a situation in which in normal times we're not reducing debts and deficits. While whenever there is a crisis, then we have to backstop the financial system. There is more buildup of public debt. There is more buildup of private debt because we have zero policy rates or negative policy rates or quantitative easing and credit easing is cheap. So we are in a debt super cycle where both in good times and in bad times debt ratios are rising and therefore eventually central banks are in a trap. People said they're going to normalize policy rates, but with these levels of private and public debt, if they were trying to do that, there'll be a market crash, an economic crash, and therefore I think the path of least resistance, mm -hmm. given that that ratio is going to be to wipe out the real value of nominal debt at fixed interest rates with higher inflation. That's one of the reasons why I see loose monetary policy, loose fiscal policy, loose credit policy, and eventually inflation okay. being the source of the wiping up of the real debt. This is a critical story. I went through the new European paintings gallery at the met this week and Noriel speaks of the old world that you symbolize. Are we going to do the same thing they did in Venice in the city-state of the 15th century, which is inflate our way out of our present challenges? 
Well, we have a huge amount of debt and deficit. What are the options? Are we going to cut government spending? Politically, the pressure everywhere in the world is to do more spending, to essentially deal with income and wealth inequality. Are we going to raise taxes on the wealth and the rich? There's going to be constraints on that. So there'll be constraints that are going to impl- imply the deficit remain high, and therefore the path of least resistance is going to be to monetize them and try to wipe out with higher inflation the real value of nominal fixed interest rate debt. Of course, over time, debt is going to reprice. Short-term debt is going to be higher interest rates with high and volatile inflation. Inflation risk premium are going to go higher. So that's going to be a solution in the short term. And eventually, high debt ratios with real rates rising over time is going to imply debt defaults because it'll be unsustainable debt situation, both in the private sector and in the public sector in a number of countries. So I see both inflation and debt crisis ahead. Yes. John here. Good to catch up with you again, buddy. Great to have you with us on the show. Walk me through what that means for trend growth through the next couple of years then, through the next 10 years for that matter, given everything you've just described. Well, we have on one side debt ratios that are unsustainable. And as I pointed out, the current mild stagflation, where growth is lower and inflation is higher, is not just driven by short-term supply bottlenecks, both in goods market and the labor market. I pointed out that I, I see over the medium term nine negative supply shocks that are going to reduce potential growth and increase cost of production over time. Very briefly, what's going to happen is deglobalization and protectionism. We're going to have balkanization of global supply chains, aging of population in advanced economy and emerging markets, restrictions to migration from south to north, decoupling between U.S. and China on trade, technology, data, information. We'll have global climate change going to increase the cost of energy and the cost of food prices, where pandemics are going to disrupt again, global supply chains. We have also cyber warfare that's going to be a source of disruption of production. And finally, the rise in income and wealth inequality implies that there'll be monetary and fiscal policy trying to help workers, labor, unions, and that's going to put upward pressure on wages. So I see a situation which over the medium term, we lose monetary and fiscal and credit policy and these negative supply shocks, you yeah. could end up over the medium term in a situation of stagflation like in the 1970s. That's the situation I worry about. And Nuria, this is far more nuanced than I think many people realise. A lot of people are making this call for higher inflation based on loose fiscal policy, monetary policy staying easy. You're focused almost overwhelmingly on these structural issues that you think are just going to stick beyond the fiscal fiscal push that we've seen over the last year fading. How underappreciated is that view? When you go to events like this and have that conversation on the sidelines of economic forums like the one you're at, well, I think it's unappreciated because even those who worry about rising inflation make an argument that once these uh, short-term bottlenecks are going to go away, the source of inflation is going to be essentially overheating of the economy coming from the fact that monetary, fiscal and credit policy is still too loose. I agree on that side that aggregate demand is going to be in overheating, but also worry about the medium-term aggregate supply of the economy. And I see these global trends that are just the reversal of the forces that for the last 30 years kept inflation low. All of them are reversing in a direction where potential growth is going to be lower, cost of production is going to be higher, and since monetary and fiscal policy and credit policy are going to be loose, eventually we end up with inflation and slower growth thus stagflation. Dr. Rubini, in a final question, I want you to address for our audience on radio and TV the optimism you have of the American economic experiment. I have fought for a decade plus of calling you Dr. Doom. I don't buy it for a minute. 
you've got a lot of worries out there. But state the optimism you have on the American experiment. Well, on the American experiment, I would say the most positive thing about it is that there is going to be a huge amount of technological innovation, uh, whether it's AI, machine learning, robotic, automation, all the essentially application coming of it, going to over time increase productivity growth significantly. However, I worry that AI, automation, robotic is going to also have negative spillover. It's going to increase income and wealth inequality. It's going to lead to massive technological central, unemployment. Is, is that a central bank responsibility? Can the central bank, is the, is the social guide of last resort, do social policy within the central bank history? Well, I, I worry that the central banks now are on a mission creep. They start by worrying about inflation, then growth, then financial stability, then income inequality, then global climate change, and a list of other factors. And that mission creep implies that they're becoming highly unconventional, and that's going to lead us to higher inflation over time. You have to limit what you have to do. And what you can do is only growth, inflation, and maybe financial stability. So that initial grip is part of what's going to lead to higher inflation by unconventional monetary policy being around for much longer than otherwise. Noriel, thank you, sir. As always, good to catch up. I thought Noriel liked Dr. Doom. Tom, <laughs> I know Noriel likes that one. He's smiling, TK. I don't like it. Why don't you I like it? I got too much of a respect. Well, he has old world. Dr. Realist. Yeah, Dr. No, realist. Dr. Realist. Here's Neither the difference. This is John. Optimist. John, this is really important. He represents an old world economics that's worried about the solidity of balance sheets and financial statements versus an American modern income statement dynamics. That's the difference. He's not Dr. Doom. He's Dr. Istanbul. He's been a good friend of this program over the years, and we appreciate it. Nuria Rabini there, the CEO of Rabini Macro Associates and co-CEO of theboombust.com. Right now, and this is a great joy, she gave us so much perspective on Afghanistan and looking west to her Iran. Afshani Beshalos joins us right now from Rock Creek. She will have an important conversation to a sprightly Alan Greenspan tomorrow here at the Greenwich Economic Forum. That will be a timely conversation. Dr. Beshloff, thank you so much for joining us. There's a nostalgia right now of moving from the chaos of the Powell Fed, making it up as we go, back to the cadence of the Fed of Arthur Burns, of Alan Greenspan. Can we go back? And if not, how do we move forward out of this crisis? I think, Tom, what has been really interesting is I don't think it has been so chaotic, in fact. The Fed has been giving us a pretty good indication of where it has been and where it's going. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the times have been, you know, the kind of the pandemic which killed more than uh, it killed even in 1918 was something that no Federal Reserve with Alan Greenspan or Arthur Burns or Jay Powell uh, could threat to very easily. But no question, I think the meeting this week, today, tomorrow is going to be very critical. And people will be listening very quick, very, very carefully, like the way they used to listen to the way Alan talked, not just what he said, but yes. how loud his voice was. No, I think you're absolutely right. I want to speak to you about the famed Greenspan granularity, the way the gentleman from NYU would look at each and every rail car, each and every data. That granularity works in goods-producing economies. Do you have a confidence that we can shift 
to a service sector prosperity and do that with this technology overlay we're all talking about? So the interesting thing in talking to Alan is that he does these daily forecasts. Remember, he was a forecaster before he was a um, Fed chair. And he has continued doing that, interestingly, with the huge problems we have with the supply chain right now. The kind of work he was doing on railways and uh, counting the rails, uh, railway uh, um, uh, trucks and, uh, and cars and, uh, and looking at uh, the sort of the minutia on the supply side has become incredibly, incredibly valuable because the tech sector, as you said, may not get uh, well mm. measured in some of his um, some of his estimates. But supply chain problems that we're facing is very traditional economics 101. Obviously, a lot of those supply chain issues have led to higher inflation, and we actually had the OECD releasing its interim uh, forecast earlier today, expecting higher inflation in the U.S. and the U.K. and in the Eurozone, but also saying that supportive fiscal and monetary policy needs to stay in place. Is that going to mean inflation runs too hot for too long? I actually believe in a drug creek. We are looking at inflation being more of a short to medium term issue. There is no question that if you throw in so much liquidity that will now start slowly being taken out of the economy, if you have the kind of disruptions we have, even as we're speaking, there are ports, uh, ports that are getting closed down because of uh, sick people with COVID. So that while that is going on, there's no question we're going to have disruptions mm -hmm. and that will be pushing up inflation. I think as we get into 2022, 2023, if the assumption is, you know, COVID is uh, endemic and it sort of stays on in a smaller way, that will be a different scenario. Yeah. Obviously, if that continues, I think that's a whole other issue, bigger problems than inflation. Well, you mentioned port closures there. Obviously, we had one in China for quite some time at one of the world's yes. biggest ports. And also going on in China, you had broader restrictions due to the Delta variant. You have a crackdown on steel production because of a decarbonization effort. And you have the situation with the property sector being trying, uh, trying to be reined in by uh, regulators. And obviously, Evergrande is front and center. How worried about China are you when you think about a global economy right now? So Evergrande obviously is a big topic today, but it has been really the problems with Evergrande have been known in the marketplace for some time. The bigger topic, I think, in China is that we're so used for growth rates in China having been 8 to 10 percent uh, that people don't realize that kind of growth rate is not going to stay forever. So if you assume a more normalized growth rate in China, which moves down to closer to four, five, six percent, regardless, you know, that's a very big range I'm giving you. I think we will be in a very different situation in China. Obviously, they have major problems with um, an aging population. <clears throat> and um, those are sort of much the aging population and the fact that you will have a slower growth rate, I think, are the bigger issues that are getting forgotten as we get concentrated on Evergrande. And on Evergrande, I think uh, the government will not bail out, most likely, but they will manage it uh, in the way and they will sort of let it go out and, uh, and down uh, slowly in a managed way, probably. There's a lot of faith they'll be able to do that. Afsana, we've got to leave it there. It's a really important final point as well. Afsana Bajlos there, the Rock Creek CEO. It is a Greenwich Economic Forum, and it is about, well, your image of Connecticut, of the boats that stand around me here. My Grand Banks 54 over there moored looks little small in Greenwich Harbor. 
but it is a Connecticut that mirrors this nation. The income disparities in this state are absolutely extraordinary. Ned Lamont as governor is steering this state forward. We have a conversation now on the inequalities of this state. You are the courage as a fancy guy growing up with a Lamont family. You went down to Bridgeport and taught. What were the lessons you learned in Bridgeport away from entrepreneurship about the economic disparities of your state? Yeah, good morning, Tom. Um, Welcome to Connecticut. I taught up at Harding High School. That was probably 20 years ago. I taught a class on entrepreneurship, how to start up a business. Here's what I learned. I said, find an entrepreneur and write a story about somebody you know who started up a business and they didn't know. They didn't have role models there. So Mm -hmm. I brought in entrepreneurs who had created businesses, trying to inspire these kids that you can do it too. What do you need from the Biden administration? Taxes are front and center. We'll get to the salt thing in a moment. But on a holistic basis of all the people of Connecticut, the north up towards western Massachusetts and over to the east to Rhode Island, what do you need holistically from the Biden administration on a new tax policy? I want to see this infrastructure bill pass. You know, I could take 10 Does minutes. Does it all go into I-95? Metro North, a lot of Metro North. <laughs> I-95 helps too. I mean, we have a lot of people moving to the state. 50,000 folks have moved in the state in the last eight months. And uh, I want to do everything I can to speed up rail service from Stanford down right. to a Grand Central. That infrastructure bill helps there a lot. On taxes, you got to pay your bills. So just do it cautiously. You took the Metro North, I believe, or at least the symbolism of it, down to Mets Yankees with the new governor of New York State to us nationwide and worldwide. The emotion you felt on this important remembrance of 9-11. 20th anniversary of 9-11. I was in the city that day. Remember like yesterday? Remember going out in the street? The cell phones weren't working. You said, man, this is something the likes of which we'd never been through before. And there I was with uh, Eric Adams and Kathy Hochul, the new leaders of um, you know, New can York. Can Adams get it done? He can get it done. I was very impressed with both of them. And look, Connecticut, we live and die by how successful New York is. We've got to work very collaboratively. It doesn't work for me to um, speed up Metro North to the Westchester border. Then it's up to them. We've got to do it together. Obviously, we've also never dealt with a situation like this when talking about the pandemic, Governor, and this is something that is front and center amid this current surge. And as the school season is still underway with many students not able or eligible to be vaccinated, why is it that those who are eligible don't need to be in the state of Connecticut? Why is it that those who are not eligible What I can tell you is um, our schools are open. Our schools were open last September. That made a big difference. New York City took a little bit longer. I think a lot of families started moving to Connecticut because they wanted their kids in school. We're able to do that safely. This year, our schools have been open. Uh, Very few quarantines, almost none, mainly because um, teachers are vaccinated and kids are wearing a mask. We're going to do that a little bit longer so our kids can stay in school and their parents can get back to work. So that means the September 30th mask mandate is going to be extended for how long? Uh, I think it's going to be extended a little bit longer. I've got to work with my friends in the legislature on that. I see um, the virus coming up, obviously less in Florida and Georgia now, more in North and South Carolina, um, Tennessee. So as it heads up here during the flu season, I want to be careful. Boy, is there a polarized tax out there, and it's a salt tax. I hear you stop conversations when you talk about this tax. It's on property and my ability to deduct my Greenwich taxes, my Connecticut state taxes over a certain level. Ned Lamont, on how we affect a real estate tax deduction 
fairly. Well, obviously, when they uh, unilaterally ended the SALT deduction, it hit states like ours a lot. And you can argue about the intellectual merits of uh, the SALT deduction. I can just tell you that Connecticut is one of the few donor states. We send a lot more money to Washington than we get back. This is critical. You send a lot more money to Mitch McConnell's Kentucky? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So I'm fighting for Connecticut. So that's why I think anything that reduces taxes for people in all income brackets Mm -hmm. here at the federal level makes sense. That includes uh, getting back the SALT deduction. Governor, thank you so much for joining us at the Greenwich Economic Forum. Right now, and this is a great joy, she gave us so much perspective on Afghanistan and looking west to her Iran. Afshani Beshlaus joins us right now from Rock Creek. She will have an important conversation to a sprightly Alan Greenspan tomorrow here at the Greenwich Economic Forum. That will be a timely conversation. Dr. Beshlaus, thank you so much for joining us. There's a nostalgia right now of moving from the chaos of the Powell Fed, making it up as we go, back to the cadence of the Fed of Arthur Burns, of Alan Greenspan. Can we go back, and if not, how do we move forward out of this crisis? I think, Tom, what has been really interesting is, I don't think it has been so chaotic, in fact. The Fed has been giving us a pretty good indication of where it has been and where it's going. Um, obviously, the times have been, you know, the kind of the pandemic which killed more than uh, it killed even in 1918 was something that no Federal Reserve with Alan Greenspan or Arthur Burns or Jay Powell uh, could threat to very easily. But no question, I think the meeting this week, today, tomorrow is going to be very critical. And people will be listening very quick, very, very carefully, like the way they used to listen to the way Alan talked, not just <clears throat> what he said but yes. how loud his voice was? No, I think you're absolutely right. I want to speak to you about the famed Greenspan granularity, the way the gentleman from NYU would look at each and every rail car, each and every data. That granularity works in goods-producing economies. Do you have a confidence that we can shift to a service sector prosperity and do that with this technology overlay we're all talking about? So the interesting thing in talking to Alan is that he does these daily forecasts. Remember, he was a forecaster before he was a um, Fed chair. And he has continued doing that, interestingly, with the huge problems we have with the supply chain right now. The kind of work he was doing on railways and uh, counting the rails, uh, railway uh, um, uh, trucks and uh, and cars and, uh, and looking at uh, the sort of the minutia on the supply side has become incredibly, incredibly valuable because the tech sector, as you said, may not get uh, well mm. measured in some of his um, some of his estimates. But supply chain problems that we're facing is very traditional economics 101. Obviously, a lot of those supply chain issues have led to higher inflation. And we actually had the OECD releasing its interim uh, forecast earlier today, expecting higher inflation in the U.S. and the U.K. and in the Eurozone, but also saying that supportive fiscal and monetary policy needs to stay in place. Is that going to mean inflation runs too hot for too long? I actually believe in a draw quick. We are looking at inflation being more of a short to medium term issue. There is no question that if you throw in so much liquidity that will now start slowly being taken out of the economy, 
if you have the kind of disruptions we have. Even as we're speaking, there are port, uh, ports that are getting closed down because of uh, sick people with COVID. So that while that is going on, there's no question we're going to have disruptions mm -hmm. and that will be pushing up inflation. I think as we get into 2022, 2023, if the assumption is, you know, COVID is uh, endemic and it sort of stays on in a smaller way, that will be a different scenario. Yeah. Obviously, if that continues, I think that's a whole other issue, bigger problems than inflation. Well, you mentioned port closures there. Obviously, we had one in China for quite some time at one of the world's yes. biggest ports. And also going on in China, you had broader restrictions due to the Delta variant. You have a crackdown on steel production because of a decarbonization effort. And you have the situation with the property sector being trying uh, trying to be reined in by uh, regulators. And obviously, Evergrande is front and center. How worried about China are you when you think about a global economy right now? So Evergrande obviously is a big topic today, but it has been really the problems with Evergrande have been known in the marketplace for some time. The bigger topic, I think, in China is that we're so used for growth rates in China having been 8 to 10 percent uh, that people don't realize that kind of growth rate is not going to stay forever. So if you assume a more normalized growth rate in China, which moves down to closer to four, five, six percent, regardless, you know, that's a very big range I'm giving you. I think we will be in a very different situation in China. Obviously, they have major problems with um, an aging population. And um, those are sort of much the aging population and the fact that you will have a slower growth rate, I think are the bigger issues that are getting forgotten as we get concentrated on Evergrande. And on Evergrande, I think uh, the government will not bail out, most likely, but they will manage it uh, in the way and they will sort of let it go out and, uh, and down uh, slowly in a managed way, probably. There's a lot of faith they'll be able to do that. Afsana, we've got to leave it there. It's a really important final point as well. Afsana Bechlos there, the Rock Creek CEO. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.